You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we continue our series on celebrating the birth of Jesus in His rightful place of preeminence over all things, with a series we are calling Christ, Let Earth Receive Her King. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. I got introduced to a book when I was in high school. I will confess I didn't love reading. And so when handed a big, thick book called Les Mis, I was not particularly overjoyed with that. But over the years, it's become a family favorite of ours. It was written uh, by Victor Hugo, first published in 1862. If you have seen the, if you've read the book, which is a big book, if you've read the book, if you've seen uh, the, the, uh, the movie adaptation or the musical, uh, you will have a, a level of familiarity with it. Is that throughout the story, it really looks at law and grace, law and grace, and how do we reconcile those two things? And what happens to a person that gets caught into those traps? Well, the protagonist of the movie uh, or the story is a guy named Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean has been uh, sentenced to 19 years of hard labor because he stole a loaf of bread. Uh, And so he gets out, and when he gets out of prison, he's got to carry an ID card around. And that ID card has his failure, where uh, where he had struggled, where he'd sinned, where he had fallen, and what got him arrested. And he's got to carry that card with him at all times moving forward. Well, he can't find a place to stay, uh, and so all of a sudden there's a kindly bishop that takes him in and offers him uh, a place to sleep and, and food. So he goes in, and the first night Valjean is there, it just gets the best of him. And so he thinks around, well, this is a nice place. I bet you they have something of value. And so he loads up all of the family silver that he can find, and he takes off. The life that he had known continues to perpetuate itself, and off he goes. A little while later, police officers find him, they arrest him, and they bring him back to the bishop's house. And you can imagine the shock as the door knocks, Valjean, all that he's feeling on the inside, the police officers who know who he is, they know his past, he certainly is guilty of this. And the bishop opens a door and he says these words, so here you are, I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest, worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? My, the silver was a gift to him. Now, I want you to imagine if you're Jean Valjean and you tried to rob uh, this bishop, what it's like to have that response. Think with me about the police officers who've seen his ID card. They know who he is. They know his track record because he's never going to change, right? You just don't change. So they're standing there. They're all shocked. Well, the police, there's no crime. The bishop had said, I gave it all to him. And when brought back, he gave him more The police officers walk off. No crime had been committed at that point. And the bishop leans forward and says this to him. Do not forget, do not ever forget that you have promised me to use the money to make an honest man of yourself. The story of Jean Valjean is one of transformation. Tremendous transformation. He was permitted to hold uh, office and to serve the public good, and yet he found a way to do that and become a force for good. While he was in jail, there was an inspector, Javert, who was there. And and Javert knew nothing about grace, nothing about grace. His whole life was dedicated to a rigid adherence to the law. And so when he gets out, he notices notices, uh, 
Valjean and where he is, and he starts pursuing him. For two decades, he pursues him. And he, can't just, he just can't let go of it. And finally, we have the scene where Valjean is able to save the inspector's life. And all of a sudden, for the inspector whose life was black and white, he knew no grace, he knew no forgiveness, he knew no transformation. He found himself in a position where the black and white world that he lived in just crumbled. And all of a sudden, he couldn't handle it. See, Valjean had been transformed by grace and forgiveness. The inspector knew none of that world. And when presented with it, when Valjean saves his life, he didn't know what to do with it. I mean, it made no sense. He had been pursuing this former prisoner, and now the prisoner has grace on him. He couldn't handle it. And so he ends up jumping in the river, and that's the end of the inspector's story. Now think with me about why a couple of hundred years later, the story still grabs our attention. Is it maybe because we all know what it's like to wrestle in the balance between grace and law? How do we walk in that? Because when extended grace, it transforms us. When offered forgiveness, when we don't deserve it, that transforms us. And at the same time, we all know what it feels like to have that moment where we don't measure up. We all know what it feels like to try our hardest to say, I can do this. I can do better. Just give me one more chance and I will get it next time. I think we all know that story. I think we've all lived that story. I invite you to turn with me into the book of Colossians to chapter two. We're going to pick up right where we were last week. The theory behind what we're doing this Christmas is simply this. If we're going to appreciate the birth of Jesus Christ, then I think we have to have a grasp or an understanding of why he offers us something significant. Why do we celebrate the birth of this child? Well, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ is preeminent over philosophies and human traditions. The way that we would think about life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life. Because what we know is the world has no end to theories. But no world theory has ever told us, come to me, all you who are tired and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Philosophies of this world can't do that. They tell you to try harder. And when we come into our passage this morning, we're going to be talking about something that we would call legalism. I'm going to say it this way. It has to do with the behavioral approach to how we reconcile our faith. Can we be saved through what we do? So I invite you to look with me, if you would, at Colossians chapter 2. We're starting verse 11. Now, he's going to build this case. He's going to build a foundation for us. And then he's going to make his point about legalism. So as we read it, you're like, this doesn't say anything about legalism. Just hold on. We're going to get there. But we're going to start because he's building a case so that we can understand and grasp what he's saying. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that had stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So now we're getting a feel for what the false teachers that we talked about last week were starting to teach. 
The false teachers are saying, no, 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 you've got to do more. It's going to demand more of you. Now, he takes us to the idea of circumcision, and he's writing to a group of Gentile believers. This is not a Jewish set of believers that have come to faith. This is Gentile believers. They have no background in Judaism. They would not be familiar or aware of all of the Old Testament laws. There were 613 of them. There are a whole lot. And if you think with me, sometimes, I mean, it wouldn't be anybody in this room, but maybe you grew up hearing somebody say something like this. When I was your age, we had to walk up the hill both ways to school in the snow barefoot. Because every generation wants to say, oh, y'all got it so easy. We got the same thing going on here. These are Gentile believers, and you got people that come from Jewish backgrounds that are looking around like, no, no, no. Now, I know that the gospel is true, that you're saved by grace alone and faith, but come on, you've got to do some of the stuff we've had to do as people for a couple of hundred years, right? You've got to do this stuff. And what he pulls out is circumcision. Now, circumcision was not insignificant. Matter of fact, we see it in Genesis 17, when God's talking with Abraham and he's going to set aside a people for himself. He writes about it this way, this is my covenant which you shall keep between you and me and your offspring after you. This is going to go on and on and on. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, as so many times when we talk about things in the Old Testament, is we're getting this imagery that is going to set us up for an understanding later. We kind of see it now. We don't grasp all that it means, but he's setting us up to teach us a lesson later. And so much like all those 613 laws, they were significant. They were not the basis of the relationship. Their trust in Yahweh was the basis of the relationship. But you walked in obedience because it built the friendship and the relationship and kept the relationship whole. Now, here we go. Look back at our passage. If we talk about circumcision, because look at what he wants to say. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, all of a sudden, we've got to understand he's talking about something spiritual here, because that was not the story of Old Testament circumcision. That was done by the hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, all of a sudden, we're thinking, okay, so what do we do with that? What's he talking about? Well, he carries the image, imagery also in Ephesians 2. Let's see if this doesn't help us a little bit. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Okay, so we got two people groups. We've got the Gentile world. We've got the Jewish world. The Jewish world is called the circumcision, and they have a name for the Gentile world. You're the uncircumcision. We've got two groups. We've got one group playing by the rules. We've got one group not playing by the rules. And all of a sudden, there's animosity between the two. It's difficult. But all of a sudden, what we say is, gee, when Paul writes this, he's saying, but there's a difference. Because the circumcision they're talking about was made by the hands. Okay, that's different. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so now we're back to our groups. The uncircumcision, the Gentile world that were not following the covenant of God, they weren't part of the covenant of God, you were separated from them. And in that separation, you were strangers to the promises. You had no part in these promises at all. It was a different world. Matter of fact, because you weren't part of those promises, in fact, you were hopeless. You were absolutely hopeless in this world, and you didn't have God in this world. But now, everything's changed. 
everything's changed because you who are far off, you were far off. Yeah, those two camps could not have been any further apart from each other. You who were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now all of a sudden, we're not talking about circumcision anymore, although Paul in Colossians says the circumcision of Christ because we're about to understand something. You've been brought near because of the blood of Christ because he is our peace. He made us one. All of a sudden, it's not the circumcision made by the hands that bring us together. Jesus Christ made us, brought us together. He established peace, made us one, and he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What was the dividing wall? Well, there were two. One was you were two camps. You were the haves and the have-nots. The other part of the wall is between us and God because physical circumcision was never going to bring about salvation. It was setting us up to understand that at the heart of circumcision is removal of something that can be discarded, described as a filthy rag. And when we're talking about spiritual circumcision, we're talking about the removal of that sin nature that needs to be discarded and moved off. Now, let's come back with that understanding and look at 2.11 again and pick up the flow of thought. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the work of Christ on the cross, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now look at his words moving forward. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, he knows they've been baptized, and so he takes the imagery of baptism and he turns it around and says, let's just use this as an example. Let's use baptism as an example. And so, all of a sudden, think, this is why we practice baptism by immersion. You're fully immersed in the water. Some of you may have come from backgrounds where you were sprinkled with water. Our imagery with immersion, I think, captures it more. The idea that you get buried in the waters and then you come up out of them, you get resurrected. Now, it's not that the water is salvific. It doesn't accomplish our salvation in any way. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. That's what's already happened for the believer. So you move into that with the idea that it's a picture, and we do that as an act of obedience when we get baptized, but it's the imagery that's there. Now, think with me about your own Christian life, about how hard it is sometimes to allow things to remain buried. How hard it is for things to remain buried. Now, he's saying it's completed. It's, you've been baptized. You were buried with Christ. Now, think with me about how hard it is to allow things to remain buried. I'm going to use these, these words. Think about that U-Haul trailer that you and I all hook up to our trailer hitch. And in that trailer are your failures, your mistakes, where you've placed shame, where you have struggled, where you didn't meet the requirements, where you didn't meet your expectations, you didn't meet somebody else's expectations, and you and I are trying to drive around with this U-Haul trailer of overwhelming guilt and failure in your life. Now think with me about how hard and debilitating that is. Now I want you to think about the Apostle Paul who's writing this. Now, Paul, if you know Paul's story, before he came to faith, he was a Jewish religious leader who was trying to eradicate the church. So the very first martyr for the church, Stephen, he's there giving approval at the killing of Stephen. And then he set out to absolutely destroy the church. And thank goodness he didn't. How could he? God had a plan. He was moving his church forward. But I got to tell you, as I deal with guilt and shame and struggle in my own life, 
Imagine if you were the one that comes to faith, you write half the New Testament, and you think, you know what, I, I tried to kill the church. I persecuted the church. You know what Paul said about it? He said it this way, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but here's one thing I've got to do. I'm forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I think what Paul's saying is, you know what? I couldn't do anything about this U-Haul trailer of guilt and shame and failure in my past. It doesn't do me any good. So what I'm going to do is this. Today, I'm going to unhook that trailer and I'm going to leave it behind me because I can't pull it around. Sure, would I like to do some of it again? Absolutely. Can I do it again? It's impossible to do anything again. And so me hauling that U-Haul trailer around doesn't yield anything of righteousness. It's not going to free me up to walk with the Lord today. I've got to unhook that thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave that behind me, and I'm going to keep moving forward for what lies ahead. Because today what I'm in charge of is this. I can press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's where I'm headed today. There's some things in the past I'd like to do over. I can't. But what I can do today is unhook the U-Haul trailer, leave that behind, because today I'm picking up the mantle all over again. I'm pressing on toward the call uh, that God has for me in Christ Jesus. And I think that's how Paul's trying to deal with that. I think it's how he's struggling. He's been raised up with Christ. Now look back at the verses, because the terminology that he uses here is so great. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, forgiven us all our trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses. This whole idea that, you know what you need to do? You need to go do works. You need to follow all the laws. You need to go get the circumcision done. You're dead. You can't do anything. The trespasses are our sin. The fact that we've been separated from God. He's making it real clear. What happened here is we were dead, and then God made us alive. God made us alive. It wasn't our behavior. Going to get a physical circumcision for these Gentile believers, that's not going to solve the problem. It can't. Because the record of debt was so strong against us that we had to have a Savior come in. How complete was it? Well, let me tell you this. John 19, 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, these words on the cross of our Savior, it is finished. And you and I can read it just like I read it. It is finished. And yet somehow I think that fails to capture because this is recorded for us in other gospels, what's going on at the time. All four gospels record variations of this. John's the only one that uses the phrase, it is finished. Now, before I read it to you the way that I think it was intended probably happened, I need to explain it is finished. And as we say it, we can say, Lance, I get it, it's finished. And yet, in the original language, the verb tense shows us something that's really, really significant, and I want to share it with you. It is finished means it's a completed action. And you're like, yeah, I got it. I got it. It's past tense. It's finished. It's a completed action. Here's what we fail to understand is in that Greek tense, verb tense, it means that it's a completed action with present results, okay? It's a completed action, which we would have all seen. What we miss is that it means present results. It remains finished. It's finished today. It'll be finished tomorrow. It'll be finished next week, next month, next year, next decade. It remains finished. Every day, it is still finished. Now, the other accounts of this tell us that when Jesus came to the end of his life, he screamed out with a loud voice. 
It was a loud voice. It wasn't like he was about to expire and he just got all those sins paid for right before he expired. No, he was born for this moment. And so he wasn't going to be out of breath. He was not going to expire until it was finished. And so when he's on that cross and with a loud voice, it's not, it is finished. No. It is finished. And all of a sudden, that sin, all the sin of the world, Completed action was done. You and me, 2,000 years later, present results. It's done this morning when you woke up. It's done tomorrow morning when you wake up. It'll be done the next morning when you wake up. So a bold act of faith, come unhook the U-Haul of all of our guilt and shame and spiritual failures and leave it behind. Because the act of faith is this. If he really said it's finished and it really is finished, then why are we still pulling around along the U-Haul of our guilt, shame, and failures. So today, I can unhook that trailer, and if somebody says, well, who do you think you are? You can just unhook the trailer? My answer, Jesus said it's finished. Completed action, present results. I'm not pulling that thing around anymore, which is why Paul could look up and say, you know what, I can't do anything about my past. It's done, it's behind me. Here's where I am today. I'm gonna press on forward. And all of a sudden, Look at the imagery that we see in this moment. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working God who raised him from the dead. And you, us, who were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. If you're walking around today and you're thinking, I cannot live off, I cannot pull the U-Haul any longer. Praise God. You were not intended to pull the U-Haul around. It's time to unhitch it and let it go. Because no amount of having done better was enough. See, the track record is this, is that our sin is what separated us from God. The wage of that sin is death. The wage of that sin is death. And what sin? Well, it's any thought, behavior, motive, emotion that we feel that is in rebellion to God. And so when all of a sudden we come around and we say, okay, so it's pass fail, right? A single sin is what causes the wage of death. So there you go. When he said it is finished, you've been set free from that U-Haul. We don't have to carry it anymore. If you're here and you don't know him, if you're watching and you don't know him, he loves you, he wants a relationship with you, our sin separated us from him, and we were all pulling U-Hauls around. And there was one who God said, you know what? If you take on flesh and go to earth and you will live righteously and you will not sin, you can go to the cross and you can pay the wage of sin for somebody else who earned it, even though my son Jesus didn't earn it. But you can pay somebody else's. And so look what happened in that moment. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. In doing so, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. When scripture talks about debts and forgiveness and sin, it's obviously a financial term. Now think with me, for Jesus to say it's finished, that means the debt's been canceled and all of a sudden we get to live debt free. There's no debt left to pay off. Now think with me, if I say something to Ellen and wound her. It could be a small wound. It could be a $5 debt. It could be a $5,000 debt. It could be a million dollar debt. 
right? We had the capacity to hurt other people. Scripturally, we're going to call that a sin. For Ellen to say, I release you from that debt. She's not going to try to exact that money back from me. She releases me from it. And now I'm free to go live as if it didn't happen. See why forgiveness is so hard? Like, I know that I sinned. I know that I did something wrong. And Jesus is saying to me that he has canceled the record of the debt that stood against me. See, Genesis chapter 2, if you sin, you will die. Genesis chapter 3, you will die. You need a Savior, and I'm going to rescue you. And here we are, living that out. How, how much was the debt that he paid? He canceled all of it. All of it. He didn't make an installment. It wasn't a down payment. And praise God that it wasn't. If he paid 99% of my sins and your sins, and there's 1% left, guess what the price is for that one left? It's still death. Which is why when we sing the song, the glorious thought of my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. We've been set free from the reality of this life that we're living in. He took care of it. He did it. It wasn't because they weren't circumcised. It wasn't because they weren't fulfilling all 613 laws. There was one way to solve this problem. And it was Jesus Christ on the cross, which by the way, didn't catch him off guard. The whole purpose of his birth was to get to the cross to redeem us. And all of a sudden we start seeing the beauty of it. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Now think with me. These are the demonic authorities. These are the demonic rulers of this world. We know that we live in a time of spiritual warfare. Back in the day when Rome would conquer, here's what would happen. The general and the leadership would walk. The captured people would walk behind them and they would just parade. It was a spectacle to celebrate the victory. That's what he's telling us here is all of a sudden he disarmed them and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Paul in Corinth writes this, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. Here's the picture. Now picture all of those demonic evil authorities along the sides of the road. Christ is leading this, this triumph parade and that's us. That's brothers and sisters in Christ. We're behind him. We've been captured by his grace. And we go walking through that, and we're spreading the fragrance of who he is everywhere. It calls it the aroma. All of a sudden, we go walking behind Christ. He's leading us. He's the victor. We get caught in what he does. He's the victor. It's not about us. It's about him leading the triumphal procession. And there we all are, walking behind him. And the goal, the call, is that we smell of Christ, the aroma of Christ. And all of us around were like, that smells like Jesus. And the people lined up on the side of the road, the people who are mocking you, who are scorning you, who are calling you by your sin, they're saying, hey, hook that U-Haul trailer back up. Who do you think you are that you can unhook the U-Haul trailer? If they were to actually, they'd smell Jesus too. The imagery is so strong. Isn't it ironic that Jesus stripped the authority of these evil authorities is they thought they were doing something, stripping him to put him on the cross. 
They had no idea what was coming. So having established that, having established the realities of how complete your salvation is, that it's all been paid for, it's not behavioral. It is based on the goodness of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did on that cross. And he took that record of debt that was rightfully ours. We should be pulling around new halls, but we don't have to because he paid it off. Against that backdrop, look at what he says in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't let anybody condemn you for these kind of behaviors. Don't let anybody do that. Because legalism takes on that sense that says Jesus isn't enough. It's the cross plus what you and I think is lacking. I better obey all those laws. I better not fail. I better not mess up. I better pull this U-Haul along. Faith plus any behavior is what we're going to call legalism. Because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's our call. If it were any more than that, none of us would be saved. Because we all fail consistently. How do I know? I'd ask you to consider what's in the U-Haul that you've been pulling around. We all have one. Now, I think it's important to note as we look at this passage is that we're talking about salvation when it says don't let anybody judge you or condemn you in salvation. This is not talking about our spiritual lives when we talk about the reality of how we walk in Christ. I would change the word from condemn. When we read in James, my brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, That requires us to be involved in another person's life, not to condemn them, but to urge them and try to woo them back to Christ. Because the reality is this, that victory parade that Jesus is leading, that we're to be the aroma of Christ, we all have those moments where we are more like the stench than the aroma. Now think with me about what that means. In our Christian lives, how you and I live, there is a wisdom for how we live out our faith. He's not talking about that here. Here, he's talking with us about salvation equals what? Faith alone in Jesus Christ. How we walk in our faith is a different story. He's talking about salvation. He goes on to say this in James, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins is that when you and I are walking behind Christ in that victory procession, we have a role in each other's life to say, hey, how are you doing with Jesus? Hey, that doesn't smell so good. Let's talk about what's going on in your life. But that's not the passage here. This has to do with our salvation. So let's look back down at what he says. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. As somebody said this week to me, it's not our job to run around and be the Holy Spirit police, but we are called to engage with other people. We're called to love people in such a way that we care about them. We care about the aroma of Christ. Now, what's interesting to me about this list is if you look at it, the food and the drink thing, I get it because it had to do with Romans 14. You can go read that if you want. But it's interesting to me that in the same passage 
We have an astrological event such as a new moon or a pagan festival. And we've got Sabbath, which was a God-ordained directive to his people. And look at it. They're right there in the same verse. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you regarding new moons and Sabbaths. Interesting to connect a pagan holiday or pagan festival with a spiritual practice that God ordained his people. Unless this. Unless we are believing and living out in such a way that we're treating the Sabbath as though it is something that we have to do to maintain our salvation. Because if we think that behaviorally we're trying to add to our salvation by maintaining a Sabbath, I think Paul would say it's no different than going to a new moon astrological event. Now, if we're living out Sabbath as an act of faith that says, I believe that God loves me, I'm going to rest, I'm going to lean into him today, I trust that he's my provider, I trust that he sustains me. When he says, come to me, all you who are uh, tired and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, so now I Sabbath to get rest because that's the only place my soul finds rest, praise God. If you and I are coming to Sabbath and saying, man, I got to check that box so I can make my, my salvation, make sure it's really intact, because so many of us live like life is hanging in the balance, right? The idea being this, is I hope that I have one more good act than one more bad act at my last breath. And all of a sudden, what we're going to look at and see is God says, no, no, no. Unhook the U-Haul. I nailed, I nailed your debt to the cross. It's paid for. It's not about the scales. And you and I can treat Sabbath like it's a scale event. And it's not supposed to be that way. It's never was supposed to be that way. So the question that he's saying to them, I think, is probably much more akin to our world than maybe we give credit to. He's writing to Gentiles in a Gentile world, in a world that does pagan festivals, in a world that can eat and drink whatever. They didn't have the Jewish law. That wasn't ever their concern. But you got people that are saying, you've got to be this way if you're going to be saved. And I read this, and you know what I think? I think this is maybe one of the passages for us as a Gentile church to look around and say, all right, what are the legalism things that we are seeing in our world? Maybe it's diet stuff. Maybe it's calendar stuff. I think about the things where we get questions. Hey, is it okay for me to go see this movie? Maybe you walked into a restaurant and you saw somebody having an adult beverage. And you're like, man, I thought they loved Jesus. But there they are with a cocktail in front of them. I can't believe they participate in Halloween. Who in the right mind would hand out candy if they really love Jesus? Why would they ever go see that movie? I saw them coming out of that movie theater. I looked at my watch. I thought, oh, that movie's what's letting out. Because we're always judging people. And it's amazing because we love grace for ourselves and we love law for somebody else. And if you question that, here's the proof. Have you ever sped up 287 and thought, I hope there's no police officers on the road. And then somebody blows your doors off and you're like, I hope there's a cop right up there. <laughs> we all know it. We all know it. And Paul completely dismantles it. If the record of debt was nailed to the cross and it was completely paid for, then no observing of a new moon can detract from it. No observing of a Sabbath can add to it because it's paid in full. And the question for you and me is going to be this. How do we live with wisdom in the midst of a Gentile world that celebrates new moons? 
and or Christian communities that may celebrate Sabbaths or whatever other legalism we may try to put on it as a justification for are they born again or not. See, now all of a sudden, that kind of hits closer to home, doesn't it? The other thing about legalism that is so interesting is it seems to indicate the idea is that the cross of Christ was insufficient for our salvation. It's faith plus. Whatever. Doesn't matter. You can decide what's whatever. Going to church every time it opens, whatever. Faith plus anything. Which, in a very real way, diminishes exactly what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. So I say this with all, all sincerity as I say it, this to you. Don't flatter yourself. You cannot out the grace and the glory of God in what Jesus paid on the cross. You can't. Let it go. It's all paid for. When he said it is finished, he meant it. And here's the thing. You're not going to be like, well, what about the sins I'm going to commit tomorrow and next week and next month? And I can be really neurotic about that. Here's the great news for you. All of your sins were in the future in 33 AD when he hung on the cross. And he knew. He knew the sins you're going to commit tomorrow. You don't even know them yet. And he says, I've already nailed it to the cross. I've already paid for it. And you and I get to go live in light of that, which is why we can unhook the U-Haul trailer as a bold step of faith. I believe you, Jesus, when you said it is finished. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we're freed up. What a moment for you and I to live. We can't add anything to the cross. As we walk behind him in that processional, I think we're called to the role of valuing the people to the right and the left of us and in front of us and behind us, that if they're not putting off the aroma of Christ, that we owe them a conversation. But this is about salvation here. This is what we're talking about here. But we sure can be legalistic. We sure can want to compete with one another because sometimes it's not just the scales of I need to do one more good thing while I still have breath in my lungs. Sometimes it is, I don't really care how many good things I have. I just need to know that I'm ahead of him or her. And we put other people on the other side of the scales. See, all those one another passages that we just looked at in this previous series were all about the fact that we all have the same boast. Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Salvation by faith alone. That's all the boast we have. We're all on the same journey. We're all going to the same destination. Let's come alongside one another and care for one another and quit competing with one another and quit telling people that you're not saved because you don't do something the way that I think you should do it. See, that becomes such a problem. That's not attractive, and that certainly isn't the aroma of Christ. So all of a sudden, we look down, and he offers us these words in verse 17. They're, excuse me, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Think with me about a shadow. A shadow doesn't have any detail, it's completely dark, there's no light in it. You can kind of see the shape, you can see a shape. Remember shadow puppets where you can do the dog and all the things with your fingers? Here's the thing, all of these things, Paul tells us, were a shadow. Okay, all of a sudden, all right, so the laws, 613 laws, are a shadow of what's to come. Circumcision, a shadow of what's to come. But we can't really make it out. There's no detail, there's no light in it. We don't celebrate the shadow, we celebrate the light. And the reality is Jesus Christ. That's the great news. We've got the detail, we have the light, we see him for who he is. So let's come full circle. Go back to Les Mis. Jean Valjean transformed by grace. 
I would love that we would all see it, that we would all experience that. I tell you, we've all experienced the inspector Javert. We all know what it looks like to try to live righteously and not be able to do it. We all know that. I would ask you to consider where have you fallen? What's in your U-Haul? What's the thing in your life that you say, man, I wish I had a mulligan. I would do that completely differently. Where do you feel like you've fallen in flat on your face, spiritually, emotionally, uh, relationally? What's the failure that you live with that haunts you, the shame that attends it? Because all in a U-Haul, and you and I can leave that U-Haul behind us. How could we ever? Bold step of faith. If I get to heaven and God said, why did you think you could let go of the U-Haul? I'm going to say, because your son said it's finished. And he's never once lied. So I'm leaving the U-Haul behind. And we get to walk on it. I don't know what's on your ID card. If it's not the U-Haul, it's the ID card. And maybe you're walking around with an ID card that said failure, failure, failure. You can pick the failure. You know what your failure is. You know what you struggle with. And you've made it your identity. And you're walking around with this card. And maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's a behavior. Maybe it's an attitude. I don't know what it is. But you know what? I love John who wrote the gospel, the one who wrote the epistles. Because as you read John's gospel account, he put down, he, I mean, he had a pretty good ID card. Hey, I wrote one of the four gospels. I mean, that's pretty good. And yet for him, you know what he put on his ID card? The disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's what he's walking around with. Doesn't even matter who I am. Because what matters was that my debt was nailed to that cross and it was paid for. And he said, it's finished. And that's enough for me. So I'm leaving that U-Haul behind because I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I wonder for you what it's going to look like for you to put down an ID card that isn't the ID card you want to carry. It's tied to the U-Haul that you've been pulling around. Free yourself. Unhook the U-Haul. Get the ID card that says, I am the one that Jesus loves. How do you know? The cross shows you. The cross makes it really clear. This Christmas, as we celebrate the preeminence of Jesus Christ in this gift of this life, know this. He's the one that set you free from behavioralism. We didn't even play that game well. And so he came to take the record of our debt and nail it to the cross. And you and I have been set free from it. And we're not going to let other people bring us back into it. We choose to leave the U-Haul behind on the basis of faith because of who he is and what he did for us. And we've got a new ID card. So walk in that today. Walk in that this Christmas. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.